What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Long Game Podcast hosted by Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore. In each episode, you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals. Our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short, bite-sized episodes. Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right. What's up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the Long Game Podcast. Today I am joined by Ann Rhodes. She is the Chief Legal Officer at Wealth.com, which we get to work together on. And we also are co-hosting a podcast, which should be coming out almost within a week of this one coming out. But Ann, thanks for joining me again. It's such a pleasure always, Thomas, to talk to you and to um, be on your podcast, speaking to your audience. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, I I know probably a lot of people listened to the last one, but let's quickly start with, you know, quick overview, who you are, what you do, and everybody should hopefully see from this episode. We got a good, we're a good duo on podcast now. We're really getting our groove. (laughs) That's right, Thomas, Um, including ribbing (laughs) you for various things. But um, I am the chief legal officer at wealth.com. Prior to joining wealth, I practiced as as an estate planner in uh, two of the top big law firms uh, that handle estate planning for private clients. So McDermott, Will & Emery in New York City and Perkins Coie in San Francisco. And so when I think about my experience, you know, planning, I've really seen it all, you know, span the gamut from families building first generation wealth all the way to the ultra, ultra high net worth and some of the wealth transfer strategies they put in place. So I'm just excited to um, be here today and talk to you about uh, whatever it is that you want to talk about. Thomas. Yeah, exactly. So everybody, you'll probably see Anne a lot because I'm just gonna be like, anytime I need a guest and we're on estate planning, we're going to Anne because she knows her stuff really, really well. Um, but for today's topic, we are basically going to talk about, so you funded a trust, now what, right? We don't really have to go into too much of the differences between trusts and wills and any of that. We've talked about it. We don't have to talk about whether this is irrevocable trust or revocable trust. We just really want to talk about, hey, that trust is funded now what do we do? And I think maybe even before you really get into that, maybe you can help educate people on the problem that exists around this issue of trust created, and then people just don't know what to do. Right, exactly. And so one of the things that's kind of misunderstood, I think, about trust, because we're so used to thinking about it as like a will substitute, right? That like, oh, do you need a will versus a trust? And like, what are the reasons you'd go for one versus the other? Is that trusts live lives, like legal lives, um, as soon as they are created. And the creation varies a little bit by state, but generally speaking, it's the person who's signing the trust has an intent to form that trust. And that's shown through the signature and that they, some States require the, um, the trust to have something in it. Right. So if you've ever seen a trust that was funded by like $10 or $20, you're like, what's the point of that? It's actually just to prove to like everybody that like, yes, I meant to create something and already put something in it. So I'll give it a token cash gift. And so anyways, that's really all it takes to, to create the trust And then it's like, but during the life of your client, 
the life of the, you know, we call it a trustor wealth, but it can be called a settlor or grantor. Those are all kind of the same term, but like the life of your client, they can hold things, these trusts, right? You don't have to wait until your client has passed away before like magically this thing like kicks in. And so what are some of the reasons you'd want to start funding the trust and funding means putting more than just the $10 or $20 in it, right? Like actually put assets into it. The first thing to know is that there are some states where you should fund or you should transfer as much of the assets as possible into your trust to bypass the probate system. Probate is this court system. I mean, we talk about it a lot on our podcast but it's overseen by a judge, right? And this whole court system. And if you pass away either without any estate planning or with a will, uh, that will go through that that court system for that client state. And some states, honestly, like the state where I practice in California, it's just like not a great, you know, smooth process. And so you don't want to go through it if you can avoid it. And so funding the trust, putting as much as legally possible into that trust is super important for a state like that. And then there's a secondary um, consideration or big one, which is uh, you want to think about if there are continuity issues with certain sensitive assets. And here I'm talking about the business owners. So if your client owns a business that they're operating day to day, it's really important that somebody has the ability to vote the stock sometimes, you know, for big decisions being made, it is really worthwhile to see if that company stock can be put into a trust because there's another document legally, you know, a legal document called a financial power of attorney, power of attorney over financial matters. You can make it durable, meaning if the person has lost capacity to make decisions, it's still that agent still has the ability to continue, you know, using the power of attorney. But that document, honestly, is super clunky compared to a trust. If if that asset can be owned by the trust, it's almost a no brainer. Like, who's the trustee? Okay, they can do things with the asset, but the financial power of attorney has to be accepted by the third party. The person, the agent has to bring it to like the board of directors or whatever and like be able to act through it. Like it's just not a great system. And the trust is a much more robust vehicle. And so if that's a really important consideration, then put the stock into your trust so that if in case something happens to your client, somebody can step into the shoes like pretty much immediately. Do you, do you see people have different financial power of attorneys inside of their trust where there's like different sub trusts or, you know, different setups where like, Hey, maybe I want my dad to be my financial power of attorney in like my regular life, but maybe I'd want somebody different to be able to make the decisions around the business. Yeah. I see what you're talking about. So there are, so unpacking that, uh, yes, you can split up powers. That's the basic, you know, the baseline. Either the power is held through a trust, right? So you're the trustee of a trust and that asset is within the trust. So that's why, you know, you have the powers or the person's own name, you know, that person, the principal holds that asset in their own name and you need the financial power of attorney at that point that you can also split up, right? So I had clients who had like two or three financial powers of attorney and one was like, okay, my spouse gets to, you know, do certain things over my assets, you know, including sign off on my income tax returns, if that's something that needs to be done. But that business asset, you know, my spouse knows nothing about what's going on in my business. Like I trust my business partner for that, you know, one specific person. And so then they might split up 
if you, for example, use like a statutory form or like the wealth form, you can actually see check boxes on the form and you can like do multiple versions of it and just check different boxes. Just hmm. be very careful when you do something like that, because you could check the same box on the same power of attorney, you know, like yeah. different powers of attorney. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, my wife has a real estate power, but so does my business partner. Like that becomes confusing. So just be very careful when you're like doing yeah. that the box exercise. Yeah. And that's where we can become really valuable with our clients of saying like, let's review this together because you might've made some small little issues. But I think what a lot of what we're talking about here comes back to like a ten intention around your estate planning. I feel like a lot of people think of estate planning as just a task that needs to get done. Right. Almost in the way of like, I need life insurance. Like here's a number that's good enough, like whatever versus the estate planning isn't, shouldn't just be like, this is a document that needs to get done because I'm told I need to get it done. I, it's a document that I need to have intention behind. So it actually lives out the way that I want things to be done. Exactly. Exactly. And and I like how you think about, you know, what you said about, you know, oh, it just needs to be done and like checking the box, because actually once you have an estate plan, that's an opportunity for you to look back at all these other decisions that you may have done made um, and going back to, you know, the topic at hand, like, what do you do once you have the trust? Number one before you even get to funding, honestly, is like looking at all the ways you're holding the assets, because you may have done things that we consider to be placeholders as estate planners before you have that estate plan, before you have the trust. Typical example for this. Think about um, like rights of survivorship, right? Do, do you see, you know, on brokerage accounts or whatever, the titling of that account is W-R-O-S or just R-O-S. Mm -hmm. Those letters stand for with right of survivorship. And what that means is that person was thinking, hey, if I pass away, like this is just my joint account with my spouse. So we have right of survivorship. So that automatically, yeah. exactly. It just goes to my spouse and vice versa, right? But like maybe that was a placeholder until you had or your client had a trust in place. And now you can remove the right of survivorship because your trust is a much more detailed way of passing that same asset. So yes, the spouse can still be the primary beneficiary because that's what your trust says, but then maybe you create special trusts underneath for the descendants or something, or, you know, something a little bit more complex. Well, by removing the right of survivorship and passing it through the trust, because now there is one, you're actually taking away a placeholder that used to be like a placeholding estate planning mechanism and putting it through the like more proper, like fulsome estate plan. So think about those types of interactions. Having that trust created is a perfect time to start looking back at some of those designations elsewhere, mm -hmm. right? Like retirement accounts, life insurance, et cetera, is now the trust a better way to pass that asset? Yeah. Okay. No, that's super interesting. Let's talk about, so trust set up, like what are the things that we want to think about to go into there? And maybe we talk about the difference between like, is the trust the beneficiary versus the owner of it, which I think people really get confused about as well. Oh, I love the way that you frame this question because there is a difference between, you know, the client's still alive, right? They've yeah. just signed their trust. The trust can become an owner of assets, but it can also just receive assets once your client has passed away. That's like owner versus beneficiary. Love the way that you phrase that. So here's my take on that. There are certain assets actually as a baseline that legally you can't even transfer into a trust. Like it can't even become the owner. And yep. this is what I'm thinking about like retirement accounts, right? Plan participant. That's what, that's like the fancy word for 
your client is an employee or somehow earning, you know, the, the retirement account is building during their life, that retirement account can't even be tra transferred into a trust. So don't even try. But your trust can become the beneficiary of that retirement account, right? So client, you know, didn't get to use up all their retirement benefits during life, you know, maybe they passed away too soon or whatever happens. They had a huge retirement account. They just didn't get to spend it down. So in that case, that becomes an inherited retirement account and that inherited retirement account, you know, who are going to be the beneficiaries normally, you know, Vanguard or whoever has a form that your client will fill out. It will say primary beneficiaries, contingent beneficiary, just fill out that form. Whether to name your trust or your client's trust is really an important decision because with the SECURE Act, and we can go into that in a later episode in more detail, trusts are honestly not great beneficiary, like, you know, beneficiaries of retirement accounts. They're subject to certain rules and it's just, it gets a little bit messy. So as long as your client feels comfortable giving that amount of assets outright to their beneficiaries, like their spouse, they should just name an individual outright. It's under very small like circumstances that I would name a trust as the beneficiary. It's really for younger kids or you yeah. know, beneficiaries then go ahead and name the trust. But that's because there's a control element to it. That's yeah. really important. And obviously not advice, but like for you, this would be like, hey, spouse is probably primary, but contingent, I do need something else. And it's probably not going to be my parents, but the trust would start to make sense because, you know, you have a one-year-old, for example. Exactly. Exactly. You're kind of playing some income tax games versus control like issues. And there's- Even on the revocable trust side? Yep. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So just name the spouse because spouses get a ton of income tax advantages under the code. If that's palatable to your client, like it's a good idea. Um, but anyway, so retirement accounts, that's a perfect example of like, can't even be owned by the trust during life, but just, you know, consider the beneficiary designation, if it makes sense. Then there are just like all these other assets that could go into a trust, right? So like brokerage account, cash account, whatever, you know, checking account to the extent that it's important to your client, uh, to avoid probate or to have continuity in how the asset is managed, stick it in the trust might as well. And title. And titling. I was just going to go to the same thing. You stole the words out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we get along so well. Um, yes. And then it's your job as a financial advisor to help your client with the titling because it's annoying to title. Like it's just something that's learned, right? It's like magic words almost. But hopefully the person who prepared the trust will tell you how to title it. There should be some sort of like guide for that, right? And so ask the lawyer or ask, you know, at wealth.com, we produce a certification of trust as well as a trust owner's manual that tells you exactly how to title. So look for that, you know, guide basically. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, it's, you know, whoever's a trustee, usually your client. So let's say, for example, Thomas, you're the person with a trust, okay? It would say Thomas Kopelman as trustee of the name of the trust. So let's say you called it like the Sunset Trust for fun. Okay, so Thomas Kopelman as trustee of the Sunset Trust. You can add the date to be fancy, but it's probably not even necessary. So that's And that's that. going to be the title of the bank account. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And then, the, you know, Thomas, it used to be your account in your name. Now it's in the name of your revocable trust. You can withdraw cash as you normally would use it to, you know, do whatever, live your life. 
Um, but probably- you could always take it out, right? Like, I mean, it's in that trust section, like we're staying in this revocable side, like you can still move it out. So like people who get worried about, ugh, you know, but I also think for me as a financial advisor, this is why like estate planning is part of like, you know, the onboarding process and making sure it gets done. But doing all of that might be like in year two of the planning, because, you know, you have so many action item things to do. It's like every bank account change and, you know, brokerage account change, like all of those changes are a lot of little steps that you almost want a whole dedicated period of time to just working on that. But here's the practice tip for you today, which is this is the beauty of estate planning as a continuous touch point with your clients. It is like the gift to your client, but to yourself that keeps on giving because there's such a long to-do list. And like, nobody wants to do these things. You know, it's kind of boring to push paperwork around, but you bring real value to your client by helping them get it done. And so, yes, you know, even if you did like two accounts a year, that's something that you're helping your client, you know, check off the list. And I'll tell you, um, maybe we can talk a little bit about like what it would be like to stick a ca- you know, a checking account, what the bank will ask you for and where the financial advisor, you can step in and help. I will tell you usually, I mean, banks should be asking, Hey, you want to stick your chase account into, you know, your revocable trust client. Well, prove to me that this trust exists. Right. And so that goes back to something that I talked about earlier, which is called the certification of trust. Like what the heck is that? Because sometimes you guys may have seen like, you know, this like two or three page document and not the full trust, which is more like probably 15, 20, 30 pages. And so what the heck is this like little two page document called a certification of trust? It's basically, it acts as a cover page for a bank to know that your, the trust exists, the basic information, whose social security number goes on the account, like anything that basically the bank needs to open up that account. And the certification of trust is enabled in most of the states. I think New York is like one of the few last holdouts or something like that, (laughs) you know, Um, but, you know, the certification of trust is usually produced by the lawyer or, you know, wealth.com or whoever is putting together the document, but the bank sometimes like their own forms. So you're not guaranteed to like, just be able to waive the certification you already have. Sometimes a bank might be annoying and ask you to go and notarize a new one. But you should be able to transpose the information from the certification of trust you do have and just copy and paste it into the bank's form. So that's a little bit of a process, right? That's homework for somebody to do. And that, you know, as a financial advisor, you can speed up that process for your client to help them get through that process. Yeah. Okay. No, good info. So on the this type of account though, you know, we talked about whether it wants to be for like, you know, the retirement accounts is going to be a beneficiary and probably contingent for most people. But on this, the big reason you probably want it to be titled in it versus the beneficiary, right? Is because otherwise that is going to go through probate if it's not. Yeah, no, exactly. And actually a little bit, a little known fact, because this became an issue, you know, earlier in March with like Silicon Valley Bank and like First Republic and that like, you know, the stressors on the banking system is that under the FDIC rules for, you know, the the, uh, insurance amounts, if you actually have a rev trust, every single potential beneficiary of the rev trust counts as a person towards that limit. So you actually multiply the insurance. Oh, wow. That you get, right. So if if normally it would just be you, Thomas, you know, owning this account and you get up to what is it like 250? 250. 
Yeah. Right. But you, your spouse, I know you're not married yet. But still, <laughs> spouse, kids, et cetera. Exactly. All of those people multiply that 250. So it's just something. That's, actually, that's yeah. actually something I didn't know. Good, good information. Um, okay. Let's go through a couple other. So we talked about retirement accounts. We talked about cash accounts, brokerage, pretty similar to cash accounts. So then we still have property or a house. Like, I mean, I guess that and life insurance are our last two, I think, to go through of, you know, how do you manage it once you have that trust? Yeah, exactly. So here's what I would say about real estate. Real estate, if you think sticking cash, you know, checking accounts into uh, a trust is uh, homework, real estate is even more so. And the reason for that is because you have to deed, prepare a deed to transfer, you know, that property into the name of the trust. And that should be recorded, right? And through the normal system as though, you know, somebody had purchased that and you want that to be traceable in the titling of the real property. And with that, honestly, I think you should just work with a lawyer. There are some, you know, um, younger companies that are doing deeding work as well. And so there are options out there, but every single county, honestly, has its own like ways of doing things. Um, my favorite example is New York again. <laughs> I hate to beat up on New York all the time, but honestly, like they have tax forms that are just like so different county from county that you just want to work with somebody who's going to do that work properly. Yeah. Which so, is good. That's good to know because, you know, my clients, some of them use wealth, you know, obviously some of go to state plan attorneys and I've talked to other advisors who are like, well, Hey, we use a different solution where they had, they like did the deed transfers for you and they're like templated. Um, which I think is an easy way for maybe you talk about like why templated deed transfers are not the solution. Right. And I, I think it's because so many different states and counties have differences in them. And so, you know, it's a good starting basis probably to like template it and then like, you know, quick claim deeds and things like that. They sound very easy, but there are also tax forms like real property tax transfer forms that often accompany those things. And those will be different. You know, government like locality by locality. And so, yeah, I just, I would be careful with that. Um, what happens, what happens if you have like a bad one? Like if it was like, oh, this is just some basic templated deed transfer and that's not actually the right solution. Yeah, that's a really great question. So that becomes an issue when that property becomes, it goes up for sale, right? Because you have, you've heard of title insurance. I mean, it exists for a reason, which is if you have bad title as a seller, you should not be able to sell that property. Or if you do, there could be all sorts of issues with like, you know, lawsuits and people who are, who don't think you actually properly own that thing. And mm -hmm. so um, as the buyer that also like, you know, you get title insurance for a reason, like you want to make sure that you're getting something, you know, fully in your own hands without any of those issues. So yeah. that's just, you know, one of the, the risks. So I'd just be careful. Yeah. And then um, I will say though, if your client owns real estate in their own name right now, that's situated in other than their own home state, even though the homework is so painful, do it for real estate because that executor or the trustee, if that client passes away, that executor is going to have to open up probate, not only in your client's home state, but in every single state where they own that, you know, other property, yeah. real estate. So it's just like so annoying and so expensive for yeah. the executor. Makes sense. So again, that one's titled. So then now we have life insurance. Life insurance. Okay. 
So life insurance, um, this is an interesting question. If it's just life insurance that like, you know, the proceeds are going to be used by the heirs to generate a little bit of liquidity or, you know, to make sure that they're provided for all of that, there is not really truly a reason to transfer the ownership into the name of the revocable trust. Just name the revocable trust as the beneficiary. That's an excellent, you know, uh, example, kind of like retirement accounts of like, it's not really worth transferring title just name the benefit name, you know, as a beneficiary, it's, it's good. And again, it's probably contingent for most people too. Exactly. Yes. But, but, um, you may have heard of something called an irrevocable life insurance trust. If your client is getting into like taxable issues, taxable estate issues, it actually may be worth creating an irrevocable trust. So this is not their like normal, you know, will substitute rev trust. This is their irrevocable trust to make sure that that those insurance proceeds, the death benefits are outside of their taxable estate. Because, you know, if that's what kicks them over and all of a sudden, like every single dollar, extra dollar is going to be taxed at 40% federally. So like, why not just stick that insurance policy, have it owned by the irrevocable trust. And that's just outside of their, their estate. Yeah. And there's, I'm actually writing a blog post on this and maybe we'll do a whole episode on it because it's obviously more complex, but this is where the whole issue of permanent life insurance salesmen kind of don't tell the full story where they're like, Hey, you know, this life insurance is not count. It's not taxable. And you're like, well, it's not, it counts into your taxable estate, right? Like under that exemption, it's not taxable, but above it, it is. Mm -hmm. And that's where like you kind they don't, they don't tell you that part. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, okay, cool. Anything else to add on, you know, now that you've funded the trust, now what? what? Anything we missed? I mean, my bottom line advice is always ask your client, like, did you actually talk to the people you named as your successor trustee to make sure they're comfortable with the job? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sometimes, you know, they're going, the client is going through this exercise being like, oh, you know, my brother would be perfect for this. And it turns out the brother, you know, already feels overwhelmed by the amount of stuff going on in their own lives. And they may be really competent at being a trustee, you know, that's why your client trusts them, but they just don't want the job. And so it's always good to know that on the front end for your client, because then they have the opportunity to update, update their trust and name maybe a backup to their brother or, you know, somebody else. So, yeah. Yeah. I think this is a super important topic though, because we do see so many unfunded trusts and like, I have a new client. He was starting about to start his estate planning before signing with me. It's going to be $9,800 to set up a trust for him in Texas, like doesn't own a business, has kids, own property. And you're like, if you spend $9,800, then nothing ever ends up getting done. Like just what a waste of money, you know? Yeah, exactly. So those trusts can be really powerful vehicles. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's actually after creation that you really truly get to appreciate how powerful they can be. Yeah. And it feels like, you know, when you have all these accounts set up, you already own the house, like there is some pain in doing this. But I think the second part that we haven't really hit on is, well, once the trust is set up, there are still, it's not done, right? Like every year, if you set up a new bank account, right, you have a new high yield savings account you move to like, well, now right away, you should title that in the trust or, hey, you move. Wow. When you buy the house, you know, that deed should be in the name of the trust. So it's a little bit easier when first time, like when it's already created and now you're getting something new than changing something that's already open because the trust is new. Absolutely. So, you know, as painful as it is to do deeds, to transfer something of real estate property, like from your client's name into the name of the trust, think about the fact that if it's a new property, you don't want it to be 
purchased in the name of your tr- your client and then transferred into the name of the trust. That's a two-step process. <laughs> Two yeah. names. Instead, just like minimize that, you know, do it all at once. The only caveat I'll say to this is some banks are still not totally comfortable with Rev Trusts and they say it's cleaner and you'll get a better interest rate as a client if you just do it in your own name and then, you know, retitle into the name of your trust. So they ask you to do the two-step process. That's okay. Just mention it to your bank that, or the client's bank, that what they want to do is eventually have it in the Rev Trust. And so that way the title company can prepare two deeds at once. And they Mm, just, you know, you sit on it for a little, the second deed a little bit, or you actually sign it even at the same meeting. But that way, you know, you're not like chasing after a brand new lawyer just to do that second step. The title company can take care of both. Yeah. Is Is there any things that you saw like, people really mess up on, on this, like they've already had the trust. Like what, what are some big mistakes people make around this? Yeah. So the number one mistake I'll tell you is when they go for a refi, like a refinancing of some sort, or they open like, um, you know, some sort of credit line on that real property. And so at that point in time, you know, they have the real estate, it's in the name of their rev trust. They did their homework correctly. They want to bypass probate. Like it's, they refi in their name. They refine their name because that's what the bank asks. And then they completely forget to like refund it back into the trust. Mm. So that like property jumping out of the trust into the client's name and then needing to jump back in, that's a little annoying, but you should just always train your client to think, what's that second step? Like who can prepare that deed for me on a, you know, cost-effective basis, you know, a way so that I can get it back into my trust. Mm. Any, any other mistakes you feel you're worth mentioning? That's really it that I've seen, you know, um, there are all sorts of, you know, other wealth transfer uh, techniques that you can do with real estate, but that's probably for another episode. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Well, Anne, thank you for joining us today. I, I feel like I learned a bunch of new things. And a lot of times I feel like I'm just talking about things that are in my wheelhouse. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing all this information to everyone for free. Um, obviously you're not super big on social media right now. That's something that we're going to be working on in the future, but like, is there any good places for people to, you know, reach out to you if they ever have any questions or kind of want to engage with you? Yeah. I think LinkedIn is probably the best. I actually do check my LinkedIn. <laughs> okay. And just, it's just LinkedIn.com, <laughs> LinkedIn.com slash Ann Rhodes. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Well, thanks for coming on and everybody. Thank you for listening. Uh, Please rate, subscribe, and we'll see you back next week. Mm